0: the podcast everyone. This is Andre from the Mental Health and I'm here with three members of the Game Change team. Can I call you that? Game Change team? it's yep. like you're on some yeah, sort of exciting so. game show. <laughs> um, and so this is Alex and Jess and Sinead. Alex do you want to introduce yourself first?
1: Hi there my name is Alex. I'm a peer researcher. I work at the McPin Foundation
2: on the Game Change study.
0: Brilliant thank you. And Jess?
2: Uh, I'm Jessica and I was working at the McPin Foundation as a researcher on the Game Change project.
0: Thank you.
3: And I'm Sinead Lam and I'm a clinical psychologist working at the University of Oxford.
0: Alex, you spoke a bit about the peer research process that you did for this project and that sounded really interesting to me. Yes. Tell me how that worked for Game Change.
1: Sure, well the first Um, My first role in um, mental health was as a peer support worker, where I started using my uh, lived experience to help other people. And then I joined the Game Change Lived Experience Advisory Panel and started working with the Game Change team. And that progressed into my role as a peer researcher, which was a very good progression. And I started working on a more uh, regular basis for the McPinn Foundation. And at the beginning, I was very much a soundboard. So the project team would come to me and say, what do you think of this? Do you think this resonates well? Would this hang well with the people? that were trying to help out and then um, they'd take ideas further to the lived experience advisory panel based on what i'd said that kind of thing so that's how it started
0: and so this makes total sense doesn't it people with lived experience of mental health problems being involved as researchers so not just participants in research or advisors in research but as researchers doing the work
1: yes it's very much like that so i was trained by jess to do um I, first I did some recruitment and Jess trained me, trained me on interview skills and then I actually carried out uh, 19 of the 20 interviews, 10 of them I carried out by myself without Jess being around so I really feel like I, got, I had a whole new skill set that I learnt being part of the game change study in research.
0: What difference does it make do you think, somebody with, with lived experience doing that in this kind of project?
1: I just think that researchers can be a bit high in their ivory towers sometimes and they don't know what's going on in the real world. No offence to Jess, <laughs> but <laughs> I find I found that I was able to sort of ground them and say, well, actually, it's not quite like that, or that's a bit patronising, that's not really appropriate to say that kind of thing. So just like, like I think it's some kind of sandboard or sense check that I offered. I'd like to say that was
2: before the interviews rather than Alex saying... <laughs> When we were kind of developing the interview schedule and things, wasn't it? it was yeah. Really, at that stage as well, like really just checking, like how is that going to land, and how can we word that better, and what are you trying to get at here? But then in the interviews themselves, I think it was it was really fascinating because Alex and I, after all the game change stuff, we then looked back at all the transcripts and did a bit of analysis of what the peer, what Alex Alex using her peer identity really brought to the interviews, um, and so there were lots of lots of things I think from just almost the kind of invisible cues of like you really understanding maybe how the participant might be feeling or anticipating difficult questions or yeah. you know just picking up on when they might need a break or things like that or or knowing when to like probe a little bit further. Um, and and really great examples of Alex coming in with just little bits of her own experience to sort of increase the rapport to help participants feel safe and understood. And I think, you know, we looked through it and there were definitely a few occasions where, you know, after you had made that, invol- that, that input, that then they told us something really sensitive yeah. or really, you know, quite difficult for them. And, you know, there was no control, but, I, you know, I would like to think that that was the you know having um, someone with lived experience there being the interviewer yeah I
1: had to be careful with what I shared because I didn't want to overexpose myself or embarrass the person that I was talking to so I gauged it and a few times I made a real leap of faith and a shot in the dark and said right I'm just going to say something now and see if it works because I've never done that I've never done peer research before so it was a new experience for me and I think that like Jess said Giving those, giving those examples of my own experience did support the interview and help them to feel comfortable. And most of them said afterwards that yes, it was reassuring. Even if I hadn't disclosed anything, just my presence in the interview was reassuring.
0: I'm interested in what you all think about how this kind of growing movement of lived experience and peer researchers, what the impact is going to have. Is it going to end up in 20 years' time happening right across all of mental health research do you think or is it going to stay within what is sort of still quite a small area this kind of psychological or qualitative sort of field how do you see expanding Sinead do you want to start on that
3: yeah like I would I would hope to that you would see it just expanding I guess from our perspective at Oxford it was completely essential to the game change project I don't think any aspect of um the project could have happened or would have happened as successfully if we didn't have like a lot of input from um, people with lived experience. I think we were really lucky to have Alex helping out with the interviews, but we also had um, huge amounts of support from the McPin Foundation in terms of setting up um, the clinical trial, helping us choose what measures, helping us think about how we approach people, what our like marketing material looked like, how accessible our information was. I don't think there was a single thing that we did that we didn't you know, share with people with lived experience and then get something really valuable um, back that enhanced uh, the study. And I think if you do it in a meaningful way, and I think the MacPin Foundation are amazing in supporting and setting it up um, so that it is meaningful, um, you know, there's just so much that you get from it that I think as a researcher, once you've kind of done that, you are never going to go back because you just know you'd be missing so much. Um so, and I think also the NIHR um funded us really generously to actually um, you know pay pay people for their input and their time. so I think if funders are supporting it in that way, it makes it possible to to do it well.
2: The peer research approach that we used is is one model um, but I think if, you know we could take the example of genetic studies in mental health and things so. I don't know, and maybe you could define a way so that that the peer researchers could actually get involved with data collection. There, I think it would be harder than a qualitative project, obviously, but I think the sort of the principles of people with lived experience being involved in a project from the beginning, so identifying the research questions that they're meaningful, that they're relevant to people with, like you know, they're actually the right questions to be asking, and then also the design of the study um, and. So with genetics, you know, it's, a, it's maybe a harder language. Um, for, but I, I do believe that, you know, just with some clever, some thought and some resources and some time and a commitment that you were talking about um, to kind of have that lived experience involvement from the get-go in whatever form it is. Maybe it's a lived experience advisory panel. Maybe it's a, there's a peer research. Maybe there's some other approaches as well. But just, yeah, I do think that we can see... It's almost like the wet lab approach, I'm sure that's, you know, I would like to think that that's the next kind of frontier for, um, yeah, for this kind of work.
3: And it sets a completely different tone, I think, to your research that I think when we were approaching people with game change, it really mattered to people that uh, people with lived experience had been involved in the project because I think it makes people feel like I'm not being tested you know, this isn't research on me, this is for and with me. And it yeah. just, it does feel like it sets a, a different tone and in, in healthcare, res- in physical healthcare research, there's no reason for that.
0: Let's talk about the trial and the results. So Game Change was a positive trial. So it found small improvements in avoidance and distress in social situations for this population, people with psychosis and agoraphobia. And you found um, better results for people who were more unwell. So do you want to say a little bit about that, first of all? Because that's quite a complex summary statement, isn't it? Do you want to unpack that a bit for us?
3: Yeah, so I guess the overall trial was effective. So um, after the trial, people... were less avoidant of everyday situations and then when they were in those situations they were less distressed but the size of that effect was quite small. Um, But when we broke it down looking at okay who did this really work for what we found was um, people who had kind of high or um, severe levels of avoidance so people who were struggling to actually maybe leave you know walk out the front door um, those people really benefited and they had large effect sizes, and there was also a knock on effect for um, persecutory beliefs and also improvements in quality of life, and that was at 26 weeks after the trial. So, this seems like something that's really for people who are, are um, kind of have high or severe agoraphobic
0: avoidance. And I guess when you have this sort of result in a population who maybe have not had any help. For many many years and we haven't had any interventions that can support them people get very excited yeah. um, what do you think about that the excitement because in the room just a, you know we had these four presentations earlier on and there were lots of very positive quotes and videos of people whose lives have been changed what's your kind of scientific head thinking about what's next now
3: i guess like first of all i think it is really exciting because people with psychosis you know, do tend to be a neglected group, and I think agrophobic avoidance is a massive problem for people, but it's also very often overlooked. So I think it is really exciting and it's lovely that a therapy is working for this group and it's working for the more severe, because that's not necessarily a pattern you always see. Um but obviously, you know, it's important that this is implementable in the real world. It's important that our excitement is based on rigorous um, kind of scientific evidence rather than, um, you know, new technologies obviously are exciting. Um, but we want to make sure this is really grounded um, in, you know, in the science, has a strong evidence base. And everything about um, the Game Change Project has been designed to kind of do that. So it was a large, for psychosis, it was a very large trial. So we had 346 people in the trial. Um, and now that we've got this result we're setting up a number of um, implementation studies so services are actually going to try implementing this and of course be monitoring outcomes so we can check that as we implement it that we keep those those effects going
0: so thinking about the barriers and the kind of facilitators for that sort of implementation building on the talk from earlier um, I mean there's obvious stuff isn't there like being able to afford a headset or having enough staff who are trained in how to do this stuff in the NHS. What do you see as the kind of issues that we're really going to have to overcome over the next few years to get this implemented?
3: Yeah I think you need to be thinking about this stuff really from like the very beginning. So in Game Change we had a body of work that was looking at barriers to implementation before we even had the treatment designed. So that way we could identify what are some of the barriers and then how can we um find solutions in how we build the treatment and how we run the trials so that we're all, you know we're already overcoming some of those in that kind of early stage um headsets have become incredibly cheap they're re- you know the, it's about 350 pounds for all in for um, a VR headset when we started the trial it was about 1200 or 1500 um you can use them in people's homes so in terms of clinical space um, you know, that, that's not an issue. And also peer support workers delivered um, the treatment on the trial and our lived experience advisory panels were really enthusiastic about this as a as a delivery group. And they are, you know, a lot of trusts are building up um, a workforce of peer support workers and, you know, they are kind of underutilised at the moment, so this could be really well placed. So there's I think there's a lot of solutions kind of built in around kind of implementation that means that Um, the way the treatment's been designed, the people we've tested in delivering it, um, and also the advances in tech means that it will hopefully roll out and then these implementation studies that we're running at the moment will hopefully um, give us
0: more information
3: so we can kind of continue
0: that process. How does this work expand into other areas? There must be all sorts of different mental health problems that VR could help with.
3: Absolutely. I think VR is going to be used kind of across the board because it it allows you to do really behavioural work, which, you know, is kind of the cornerstone of effective CBT, but is, you know, there's lots of practical reasons why that's difficult to do in in clinical practice. I don't think there's any mental health problem that you can think of that you don't think VR could be used to, to help with some element of that. Probably our biggest limitation is is programming and actually developing the programs and testing them. That's probably the thing that kind of slows it down. It's definitely not for a kind of lack of ideas. So I'd say in 10 years' time, you'll see stuff available across the board. <laughs>